Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to Episode 11 of the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. This podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and in all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project to advance our understanding of effective knowledge exchange to improve the learning of Canadians. You can download this episode as well as one of nine future episodes in this series from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net. From iTunes directly, just search for KM Podcast. Alternatively, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. Dr. Bud Hall is a pioneer, working on pushing our understanding and our ability to work together productively and with maximum shared benefit. He is credited with coining the term participatory action research and has been a leader in adult learning, in lifelong learning, for more years than he cares to admit. This conversation took place in his home in Victoria. Victoria is engaged in some very exciting experiments that are changing the way our institutions work with each other and benefit from active knowledge exchange. I really like the concept of expanding the interaction of knowledges and of building evidence for action from many sources. I also like his hopefulness and enthusiasm. Hopefully it rubs off on you all. Enjoy. I'm sitting here in beautiful Victoria with Dr. Bud Hall. Why don't we start with introduce yourself, talk about what you do. Okay, thanks, Peter. I'm uh, currently the director of a new structure at the University of Victoria called the Office of Community-Based Research. This is something that the university has created. It's taken about two years of consultation and has created this structure in order to to do three or four things. One, to better support uh, students and faculty at the University of Victoria who are interested in getting involved in community-based research or in fact, may already be doing community-based research would like some visibility or some recognition for their work. This is a series of podcasts about knowledge exchange, about leadership, about lifelong learning, about policy and decision-making. Okay. So one of the ways that knowledge exchange is described is bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. How do you think about knowledge exchange? Well, I think about knowledge, of course, in an extremely broad way because I've spent a lot of my years outside of the university in community settings where, you know, where knowledge was storytelling uh, or anecdotes was something that was, that was generated at, at meetings where neighbors came together to talk about, you know, the lack of parks in their neighborhood or very practical issues. Second thing is that I've, I've also been very interested in artistic forms of knowledge uh, formation and creation. So I've done quite a lot of work with theater as a form of knowledge creation and dissemination. And of course poetry, which I still you know, engage in in terms of poetry and social movements. The arts, particularly the arts as a collective form of knowledge creation production. So when I get, you know, when I get to the, the notion of, of knowledge exchange, Knowledge mobilization. You know, I'm thinking of a very, a very broad. That's a re- that's a really important piece when you're when you're talking about you know creating these spaces where people are going to talk about you know about these issues. One of the challenges I think that that we run into when we think of the universities, the universities where hard evidence comes about, and these community concerns they're important, but they're not evidence based. When you hear the word evidence, what comes to your mind? Well, evidence-based decision-making and evidence-based practice is, you know, is a discourse that means more effective use of quantitative data in decision-making comes out of medical and capital S, you know, science and is increasingly uh, being 
uh, taken up in the social sciences and humanities and, and is increasingly the coin of the realm even in, in community agencies, even in Victoria when, when I talk to the Victoria Foundation or the United Way in Greater Victoria, they're now uh, beginning to use you know, evidence-based uh, decision-making. They're using the, the, the jargon, they're using the language, but they're using it mostly because the ministries that support them are using it and, and uh, some people at the university are increasingly using it. The universities like it because they, as you said, they think that they are the places that have evidence. In the, of the right type. My concern with the with the, the concept, I don't. There's nothing wrong with evidence. There's nothing wrong with, you know, with logic and reason. But I'm I'm concerned that it seems to be a a return to or the hand is played much more by by people who have a very narrow idea of what evidence is. It's not. If we're talking about evidence, we need to. To, to think about evidence in a much broader way and uh, if evidence can be, if we can understand evidence in a broader way, quantitative studies, you know, their, their capacity for predictability is vastly overrated, then, then I have no problem with the concept. But if it's, if it's simply, you know, a means for, you know, traditional approaches to research to be, to be used, then I'm, I'm less, uh, I'm less interested in it as as a concept. I think there are other other ways to to go at go about you know decision making and in policy influencing and so forth. The Canadian Council on Learning is all about lifelong learning. Yes. And so, what is that interface between evidence and perhaps the wider meanings of evidence and lifelong learning? What life? The what's so important about the Canadian Council of Learning's attention to lifelong learning is that. There is no other place in Canada where attempting to understand learning as something that goes uh, from literally the cradle to the grave. There's no other institutional space. Early childhood people have got their series of structures and researchers and lobbyists and government supporters and research. The K-12 community has got its vast areas of implementation and you know adult literacy has got this has got a tiny little portion adult education again has got a relatively small portion and uh, the learning in the in the later adult years almost nobody is paying any attention to it at all it's I, th I think that lifelong learning if Canada were to be able to develop a coherent structure of lifelong learning a co coherent policy and structure for lifelong learning it would be be an incredible advance to the country because we are we're losing we lose so much uh, human capacity in our country because not everybody's able to to move forward not able to learn uh, in ways which then can make them more productive and more engaged citizens in terms of the relationship between uh, the evidence and lifelong learning I'm not so sure you and I were both at a conference on uh, knowledge translation in Victoria earlier in the year and there was a fellow from one of the ministries, I think the Ministry of Health. He was a deputy assistant. And you'll remember the charts that he put up in terms of the, the relative, the percentage of input that went into government policies. And I believe, if I'm not wrong, I, I believe that there was a certain amount was kind of advocacy and lobbying and special interests and ideology and political parties and whatnot and whatnot. And the amount of influence that research had, evidence in, in his sense, 
or something like 10%. So, Which caused gaps in the audience. Yes, yeah. and so for those people in universities, this is why I think that um, we need to be approaching implementation policy making in a, in a much broader way. Evidence needs to be something which, I mean, it needs to be played with and uh, jiggled around in the same way that knowledge is beginning to be. We're now talking about knowledge in much more creative ways than we were, you know, even 10 years ago. So now we've got all the whole, as you call it, the knowledge so what's. We've got this whole family of cousins of knowledges. And so I think that we need to start complexifying our notion of evidence as well. And it needs, we need to think about that. We need to take that apart and, and talk about what kind of evidence, evidence by whom, evidence for whom, evidence when, you know, uh, evidence how. We need to talk about all of that. Because until we can have that kind of a conversation around this notion of evidence-based decision-making, it's not going to go anywhere. Because if we're going to change if we're going to have changes in, in the healthcare system or the educational systems or systems of you know the, the big you know energy kind of the big systems that we've got the economic systems, your research is only one part. Your research in the narrow sense, but if you start thinking about knowledge, political knowledge, advocacy knowledge, storytelling knowledge, if we can think of knowledge broader, more powerful family of you know of, of knowledges and evidence. I think that we've got a chance to, to make a difference. So that's an interesting point, because what you're calling for is a, is a movement towards an exchange yes. from many different sources, and yes. that's really the basis of yes. knowledge exchange. But there needs to be leaders. And where does this leadership come from? Where do you see the, the leadership developing from? And how do we develop that leadership? How can CCL help support leadership and knowledge exchange to you know, tackle those issues, tackle those questions that you've just brought up? I think the CCL fundamentally believe that investing in the, the kind of infrastructure and the kind of space that will help to develop community-based research is, is a very, very important uh, uh, space for the CCL or for anybody else uh, to invest in right now because I think that it's in those spaces. For example, let me be very concrete. The, uh, the United Way of Greater Victoria has, in the last uh, year or so, undergone a transition from being basically a charitable organization giving money to 35, 50, or 100 uh, local groups that are all doing good, to moving into what it calls, what it understands as a more transformational kind of agency. So what they've done now is they've created, a, they've created three impact councils. These impact councils are bringing together the all of the you know the major players uh, and their government players and their community players and university players, and they're now coming to the University of Victoria and they're asking us we want to move we want housing is you know one of the impact areas shelter housing we're tired you know our community is willing to come together and we now would like to interact with the University of Victoria. We'll see what Marshall, you know, the kinds of the research community that you've got there, the student research community, and see if together, you know, we can do something about housing in this in this wealthy city that has 11, 1200 homeless people. So in this space, something new is going to happen. Something new is going to happen, and these are the kinds of spaces. And I think that the 
you know, what's the Institute for Urban Health Initiatives in Toronto? Right. I think that that's another space where this kind of stuff is happening. And these are the kinds of places where, uh, you know, they'll at a smaller scale, they'll work at Trent, the Trent, you know, community education center that they've got there, Trent. These are the places where, where the different kinds of knowledges and different kinds of evidence are going to come to play. When you're, when you're doing work, political work, and you're on a, a council, a powerful personal story is sometimes as important as a, as a stats can report. The right time, somebody stands up and says, well, that all may be well and good, you know, Mr. Counselor, but my aunt tried to get into that hospital, you know, four days running. She wasn't able to get into it. When, they, when she finally was accepted, she only lasted 30 minutes and she passed away. It's this... Um, but it's both. I mean, it's not just the anecdote. Because no, no. if we made decisions just on anecdote, no. we, right? Yeah. So it's, what you're saying is that what I'm hearing you say about what's happening here in, in Victoria is that the, the university is finding new value in this exchange yes. by opening up to a larger community. We're trying to. And I say, you know, we're opening up, but we're, we're in our er, the early days. Right. And it's hard for us. So what are, what, are the, what are the challenges you're facing? What are the... What are the roadblocks? What are the opportunities? The roadblocks are that we're, for the most part, professoriate. You know, we're off to the races. We've got to uh, get our uh, our research grants. We've got to publish our papers. It's a lot faster just to pick some obscure topic, get a bit of money, and get going. Not sit down with a whole bunch of you know community groups and find out what they want to do, and their stuff isn't researchable, and nobody. The structure of the funding grants and the structure of the university itself, the promotion and tenure guidelines in universities are old-fashioned and need to be need to be broadened out and made to be much more much closer to, you know, to uh, to other forms of evidence as well. In different cultures, you know, we we think we're the ones that know most of this stuff, frankly, and so to to sit around, you know, with a bunch of people from the community that. PhDs for the most part. They they don't go to academic conferences. They don't have the theoretical sophistication that, that we're that we're used to prefacing our remarks with. It's very difficult for us to hear this kind of discourse as uh, as as really researchable questions or really uh, openness. And there's a there's an experience um, at the University of Victoria, and we just have to keep you know keep moving it forward. Every time I talk to you, though, you're really excited about what's what's happening here. And so, what are those opportunities that you see? I'm very excited about uh, a number of these areas. We are beginning to, I think, at the University of Victoria, learn how to work with uh, with the Aboriginal communities uh, in a in a better way, in a more respectful way. We're learning how to approach communities using appropriate protocols, which are fairly sophisticated in British Columbia. We're we're learning to to go slow and to do plenty of consultation and to make sure that everybody's had a chance to, to be heard for rapidly moving ahead. We, we're also um, learning that what are the Aboriginal communities around this part of the world, probably and everywhere really, are not looking for a research relationship. They're looking for a permanent recognition of who they are and whose land we're really on ongoing relationship that if as we engage we're not engaging so much eight or ten or twelve research projects as we are engaging with these communities on an ongoing basis we're saying to these communities 
we will be friends, we will be partners, we will treat, treat you with respect, really basically for now and forever. So I think that we're, we're beginning, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think that the, we have also, we've done a lot of good work with, uh, with young people, you know, with adolescents and teenagers. We've, we had a number of years ago a very unfortunate a murder of uh, Rena Verk. And as a result of that, the university and a number of our university people began to talk about and think about and work with members of the community and police force and schools and parents around issues of racism and uh, violence, teenage violence and uh, you know and so forth. And so we've we've learned a lot by listening to young people themselves, by allowing uh, young people to tell their own stories in, in, in ways using video and other, you know, other much more very creative ways, film and video and storytelling and drawings and so forth. So we're learning a lot from that. Well, the use of the use of alternate technology is one of the things that people talk about in terms of the, the future, especially around knowledge exchange, that, you know, we've had a conversation that doing these podcasts is a form of knowledge exchange, that it's instead of just, you know, putting this into a paper article with text, that people will be able to listen to this. If you were to think 10 years into the future, long experience that you've had as a knowledge exchanger, as a broker, as a facilitator of this discussion, if you were to look forward 10 years, where do you see knowledge exchange going? What does the future look like to you? Well, I would love to see all of our academic, you know, all of the papers and all of the, you know, all of the work that we do, whether where it's a community-engaged piece or it's just a curiosity-driven piece, I would love to see, to find expressions of that you know, available, you know, through the internet, um, you know, to, to, to everyone. So I would love to see academics throwing their stuff up onto, you know, the YouTubes of the day or the MySpaces or the, you know, the various uh, public spaces. I think that there are, what will evolve will be uh, some kind of, you know, new uh, form of using the pedagogical aspects of blogging, some of the aspects of more formal research so that we will end up, you know, you could have them around in policy areas. So you could have kind of research research blogs around, uh, you know, around housing issues right. issues, or uh, or around uh, environmentally, uh, you know, green construction, naturopathic medicine, where you've got, where you've got spaces that are, that are co-constructed by academics, by uh, people working on these issues in the community. It's, it's open. In other words, the, the ideas are flowing. I think it'll pre- produce knowledge which, is, which has more impact. But it's, it's, it'll be co-constructed because the academic will be putting some stuff in there, but it'll be digested and commented on and, uh, and other people's ideas and much in the way that you know, the Wikipedia you know, ends up producing a you know, pretty good account of quite a lot of uh, what's going on in the world. Not entirely perfect, but pretty good account simply by you know, everybody participating. I think academics, I really do believe that it's going to be possible for academics to uh, get credit for, for doing you know, podcasting. You know, now we only get credit for academic peer-reviewed. But there's no reason we can't develop a peer-reviewed approach you know, to podcasts or you know or videos or or anything else that we stick i think that you know in general this kind of open source idea that all you know all knowledge that is produced you know becomes is available you know free of charge powerful one that's going to have a, a, a big impact on 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 many of us there will be the there the tensions are of course 
it's always this way. They're contradictory tendencies because at the same time as we've got open source and we've got the universities opening up to community and all of that, we've got the private sector also with its influence on the university, also with its influence around increased patenting and you know increased uh, commodification of knowledge and marketization of knowledge. So uh, those those two those things are going to happen simultaneously, but they always have. We are we're a public space. The university is a public space, and all of the tendencies in society struggle and interact, you know, with our space just like they do everybody else. So we're not going to be any better. We're not going to be worse. We're going to. I, I I think the next ten years or fifteen years are going to be you know really exciting years for people interested in uh, you know knowledge and its uh, and its life. Thank you very much, bud. Uh-huh.